On December 31st, in the final hours of 2015, Puerto Rico's health department announced the island's first transmission of the Zika virus in Humacao, a municipality on the east coast. Within a year, Zika infections were reported in every municipality. By September of 2017, health officials reported the total number of confirmed cases in Puerto Rico exceeded 40,000. Then, Hurricane Maria made landfall. A major storm with a direct hit on the populated eastern part of Puerto Rico. Sustained winds 165, and now the national hurricane is issuing dire warnings saying this is going to be a catastrophic storm. It is life. The island was decimated and continues to rebuild over a year after Maria moved on. But since the hurricane, there have been no reported new cases of Zika, at least according to Puerto Rican health officials. I'm Charles Sennett, and this is Ground Truth, a podcast in partnership with WGBH. Ground Truth brings you reporting from the ground by the next generation of journalists. For over two years, Ground Truth Films director Beth Murphy has been documenting the virus in Puerto Rico and Brazil, working with emerging journalists in both countries. Baby. Aurora. It's a typical morning. Valerie Rodriguez is running back and forth from the kitchen to the family room where her son Stefan is lying on the couch. It's a sectional sofa, and his spot is right in the nook where the two sections meet. Valerie doesn't worry about Stefan falling off the couch because even though he's 18 months old, he can't roll over by himself. Well, he can't roll over by himself anymore. That's because a month ago, Stefan started having seizures. That caused him to lose some of the few developmental milestones he'd reached, like rolling over and eating soft food. Slowly, we're learning to eat with a spoon again. but And I have to strain everything so that there are no lumps and he doesn't choke. Sometimes it's really hard with regular food like meats and chicken. Because no matter how much you blend it, Um, In the blender, sometimes they come out with chunks. It takes Valerie about two hours to feed Stefan and give him all seven of his medications. It's a routine she goes through each morning and then again at night. He hates this one because it's an actual pill that I have to mash. He leaves it in his mouth so that he can spit it out. And he thinks that I do not notice that. You can tell he is not happy. Stefan needs care pretty much round the clock. That's because he was infected with the Zika virus when he was in his mom's womb. It all started with a mosquito bite. Valerie was bitten by a Zika-infected mosquito when she was only two months pregnant. Contracting the virus didn't make her sick at all. But doctors told her what was happening inside the womb was... Catastrophic was the word that he used. I felt like they made me believe he wasn't even going to be born. So I canceled baby shower and I just decided to wait until he came, if he did. Zika just started becoming this bigger and bigger monster. Stefan's father, Luis. One little virus It can destroy a family. It destroys children's lives. 
I didn't expect it to be this bad. The situation was so bad that his mom and dad began to define life by a series of things that would never happen. Everyone expected him not to, not to grow, not to do anything. Um, oh, they told me that he's probably not even going to breastfeed or drink milk. He's going to be fed from a tube. And he's probably going to breathe through one, too. That's why it's a monster, because it only destroys. And it takes away that future that children deserve. No child deserves to have everything taken away from them. No child deserves that. No one deserves that. That's why it's a monster, because it's indiscriminate. Stefan was born with microcephaly. It's the worst-case scenario for babies with Zika. It stops the brain from growing, and when you look at Stefan, you can see that while his chubby cheeks look like a baby's, his skull is smaller than it should be. And doctors know Stefan's condition was caused by Zika because Valerie was tested for the virus when she was pregnant. Remember, she didn't have any symptoms, so testing is the only way doctors knew. At that time, in 2016, it was the height of the Zika epidemic, and all pregnant women on the island were being tested for free. When Valerie tested positive, she was referred to a high-risk pregnancy clinic at University Hospital in San Juan. If you're covering the Zika crisis in Puerto Rico, you have to come here. And one of the first people you have to meet is Dr. Carmen Zaria. She asks me to call her Carmen. I first interviewed her back in 2016 when the Zika epidemic was exploding. She's an OBGYN, and buttoned up in her white lab coat, Carmen's all business except for her bright pink lipstick. She wants me to meet some of her patients and takes me down the hall to a support group she set up for them. You can ask them. We might have partners, we might have sisters, we might have whoever is loving this baby before this baby's born. Nine women are here, taking turns getting ultrasounds and looking nervous as they come back from behind the pink curtain to sit in a circle. One of the rules here is that Whatever we say here stays here. Like in Las Vegas, whatever happens in Las Vegas stays here. So we can share secrets as long as everybody's comfortable and nobody's asked. That's when I see the real Carmen. The Carmen who lights up when she's helping other women. I have two brothers. I never had a sister. And I think I went into OBGYN looking for my sisters. And every patient is my sister. How many women who have been diagnosed with Zika are you caring for right now? Last week, I saw two groups of women with Zika. I saw 32 patients, and I said, okay, listen to me. You have Zika infection. You are pregnant. This virus can live in the placenta. We don't know what the impact on your baby is before the baby's born and afterwards. Zika wasn't Carmen's first experience dealing with a deadly virus that can be passed on from moms to their babies. She was also there for the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 80s. So I, I lived the same experiences of pushing for testing and pushing for screening in pregnancy because I believe that's important. I'm, I'm doing the same exact thing for Zika. Test. Test again. Then test again. That became Carmen's mantra. 
test pregnant women early and often. She believes women deserve options. My responsibility as a provider is to have the conversation. You know, you can continue or interrupt your pregnancy. It is your choice. You don't need a diagnosis to have that decision because abortion is legal. But you, I don't want you to come six months from now and tell me that you never had an option because nobody told you about it. Most people who get Zika don't have any symptoms. So the only way to know which babies are exposed is to test. It's a double, actually triple job. I'm also concerned about public health. So is public health, individual health, future of the country in terms of the infants? During our first meeting, Carmen talked a lot about how bad the economy was and how many doctors were leaving the island to practice on the mainland. Still, Puerto Rico was ahead of many places when it came to tracking Zika. All pregnant women were tested. And for babies who were born with the virus, the government set up a system to track them for three years. And all this was free. By 2017, Puerto Rico was tracking 4,000 babies with Zika. Then, in September, came Hurricane Maria. Most of the roads in Puerto Rico are still blocked. Aid is arriving very slowly. The entire island remains without power. Death toll, meanwhile, more than double. It'll take months to restore electricity. There is uh, misery all over this island. I tried reaching Carmen on the phone when the storm hit. It took me two weeks. She told me it was like the island had been hit by a nuclear bomb, and she was exhausted from working around the clock. Now we're in a much worse situation. Only 6% of people have power. Right now, 16 days after the hurricane, we're, we're in a survival mode. Even though her hospital was barely functioning, it was one of the few open. And Carmen was delivering more babies than ever, 30% more than usual. The healthcare system collapsed as well as the power system, as the communication system. And we're only dealing with emergencies. So anything that's routine, like all the babies born from women infected with Zika, all these babies that need evaluations, that stopped. And it will not be until maybe weeks from now that these services will surely start uh, renewing and, and being implemented. Weeks. That's how long Carmen thought it would take for the island to recover enough to start thinking about Zika again. After that first call, I checked in with Carmen at least once a month, and on each call she told me the same thing. There was no word from the government about restarting Zika testing for pregnant women. So in the spring of 2018, six months after the hurricane, I went back to Puerto Rico to find out what was going on. There was no Zika testing ever done since September 2017, since the hurricane. So we have no way of knowing if we are still having transmission or not. Doctors could still draw blood to test it for Zika, but there wasn't much point to it. That's because they were being told the government health lab that performs the test was closed for business. Not only that, this is when officials announced that the Zika crisis was over, that there were no new cases of Zika on the island. It was like Zika had been swept away by the hurricane. The website of the health department, which, by the way, is no longer there. 
I checked yesterday the health department website to see whether they had any Zika statistics. Nothing. They have nothing there now. It's only the old reports. Carmen couldn't believe it. The government was saying there were no new cases of Zika after the hurricane. But 1,500 pregnant women had been diagnosed earlier that same year. Doctors she works with couldn't believe it either. This is CDC 101. Dr. Cynthia Garcia-Cole is a clinical psychologist who spent 17 years teaching child development at Brown University. I mean, if you don't test for Zika, how are you going to know how many people are being, you know, infected? Before the storm, Cynthia spent a year traveling to government health centers around the island, gathering data on Zika babies after they were born, the ones the government is following for three years. Do you feel like there have been attempts to silence you? Oh boy, this is a good one. At this point, the program that I was part of monitoring the development of children born to Zika-exposed pregnancies within the Department of Health, we have been stopped. Cynthia tells me the government fired her and took all of the data she had collected She says they didn't give her a reason for letting her go. And the health department wouldn't tell us either. After Cynthia stopped working for the government, she teamed up with Dr. Carmen Zaria, and they're monitoring children on their own. Cynthia's focusing on babies who were exposed to Zika, but born looking completely normal. Babies like Kimberly. Right, so what we're doing here is the Bailey scales of infant development. Kimberly is seven months old, and because today is actually her seven-month birthday, her grandmother dolled her up in a fancy dress and a headband with one giant bow that seems to say, I don't have hair, but I am a girl. Cynthia looks like a kid herself, exaggerating her expressions and practically climbing onto the table. It looks like she and Kimberly are playing, but... Everything Kimberly does, how she reaches for the rattle, how she holds it, the way she tries to squirm off the table, it's all a test, trying to answer one question. Is she able to do what's expected of a seven-month-old? For the most part, yes, but... But I noticed that, you know, there's a little fragility here in terms of self-regulation, is what I just noticed so far. As you've been monitoring um, mm-hmm. babies exposed to Zika, what have you been noticing when you were doing the babies? Yeah, there's a very wide range. Some kids are doing really well, and some kids are very compromised. I'm noticing a lot of small motor delays, moving your hands, delay sitting, delay walking. Um, These kinds of exams are crucial. Because if a doctor notices that a baby's motor skills aren't developing the way they should, they can start therapies to help the baby. Studies like this also help researchers understand how Zika works. Yes, it can cause massive problems like microcephaly, but it can also cause more subtle neurological issues, trouble swallowing, walking, seeing. Remember that there hasn't been that many studies on these kids. And the samples right now of things that I've seen published are 30 kids, you know, 40 kids, 10, and we have 200. We have over 200. So that's why we think this data is really important to publish. But it's not clear if this study will ever see the light of day. The health department needs to authorize publication, and so far it's refused to do so. 
I told them the last meeting that we had, I said, I can't believe you're being completely unethical. So who were you talking to when you said? The officials from the Department of Health that were in charge of the Zika monitoring system. Yeah. Now, I, I've never seen politics getting involved on, on research the way that this is, looks like. I've wanted to understand the politics behind Zika ever since I started following it two years ago. And I did everything I could think of to talk to someone from the health department. At first, I called. When that didn't work, I showed up at their offices again and again. I've been to this office many times now, in person, and also called. You will have to set a date. You tell me which is the one you want to interview mm-hmm. right now, Carmen de Seda. Finally, I tracked down the Assistant Secretary of Health, Dr. Concepcion Quinones Longo. We meet in the hallway of a convention center where she's speaking at a press conference about a new lunch program. And just like the doctor said, she's quick to give me the government's official line on Zika, that the crisis is over. So far, we are not detecting new cases. Uh, of Zika, and our state epidemiologist doesn't expect to have cases right now. I ask her why the health department had stopped testing pregnant women for Zika. This is what every doctor I spoke to told me. She says that's not true, that the health department is performing the tests and has been since just a few weeks after the hurricane. After Maria, we tried to make sure uh, samples collected all over the island were brought to our central laboratory in the Department of Health San Juan, Puerto Rico. And these uh, samples were sent uh, to the CDC laboratories in the States because our laboratory in Puerto Rico was damaged. I checked with the CDC, and they told me that never happened. The health department never sent Zika samples to Atlanta for analysis. But Dr. Canonis is adamant that the testing is back on. We are not testing the population in general, only pregnant females. I just want to follow up on a couple things. Um, first, the, the testing of pregnant women. The OBGYNs that I was talking with, they didn't seem to think they had a clear mandate from the health department to be testing or that there was a way to get those test results back. The mandate exists that... uh, She blames the doctors for dropping the ball. ...that they're private physicians in private offices, and we don't have uh, that close contact with them to make sure they do the testing they should. Dr. Canonas also tells me that women can ask to be tested. But I find out later that the testing is no longer free. Women now have to pay $100. And the other thing is, last year, the government said the crisis was over. So why would a woman even ask for the test? Then I ask her something else. When will all that data on developmental delays in Zika babies be released? No, I think uh, there will be some information released. This is the kind of answer I get from Dr. Canonas on almost everything we talk about. She's hard to pin down. And by the end of the conversation, she tells me that she needs to get permission from her boss, the health secretary, before she can share any more details. It's not that I can talk to anybody openly without being authorized. 
because we want to have uh, the correct message. After we part ways, I'm left standing in that convention center hallway. And what starts to become clear to me is that the health department doesn't want to talk about Zika with me or even their own top Zika doctors. Several docs told me they stopped hearing from the health department altogether. In that silence, doctors like Carmen Zaria and Cynthia Garcia started wondering, why? Why was it so important for the government to make Zika go away? Cynthia says they think it comes down to money. There is no question, you know, that the Zika epidemic, the notion of having a Zika epidemic here, affected all of us in terms of tourism. Tourism. It's the lifeblood of the island. I reach out to the Puerto Rico Tourism Association and talk to the organization's president and CEO, Clarissa Jimenez, about how much Zika affected the island. It was a huge impact. It really Clarissa remembers when the CDC first issued warnings about Zika in Puerto Rico in 2016. And the numbers they were given were really, really high and scary. And we had lots of cancellations. You know, there was uh, the perception that you would step here and you would get the virus, I mean, because that was what was portrayed, you know, those huge percentages of the population getting the virus. Tourists stayed away, and the island lost $100 million. And that, she says, shouldn't have happened. Uh, let me see how can I say this. Um, <laughs> the reality is that a lot of hype was created. Uh, a lot of hype. Those are hard words for the Rodriguez family to hear, as they live with the difficult reality of Zika every day. Even after Stefan was born, his condition, known as congenital Zika syndrome, got worse. Before his first birthday, Stefan started having seizures. There's nothing I can actually do to help him. I just have to wait. Because he already took his medications. It is. He's having the seizures now. But that's normal. They're always going to be there. How can you tell it's a seizure? He moves. And he cries because it hurts. I know when he's crying like that, it's going to happen or it happened and he's tired. I hate seeing him like this. Look at him. Sometimes he's fast asleep and he just wakes up just to have seizures. At any time. Even with the medication. Even with the medication. He's hurting very badly. It's like he wants to be awake, but he can't. Sometimes when he's finished, he just laughs. After the hurricane, Valerie was reminded of how this all started with a mosquito bite because mosquitoes seemed worse than ever. 
you have to buy like off for mosquitoes because Puerto Rico was covered in mosquitoes. <laughs> and they would just attack you. She wasn't the only one who noticed. Stepping out of the car, as long as, as your knees straightened, as long as you were standing up, you were covered in mosquitoes. If anyone knows mosquitoes, it's Manuel Uberis. Uh, I started chasing uh, biting insects, mostly mosquitoes, in 1984, 85. Uh, when I was in the Navy, I was a public health entomologist as an officer. If we're going to keep talking about Zika, we have to talk about mosquitoes and the intricate connection between climate change, big storms, and human health. What is the deadliest animal? Bar none, the mosquito. And the mosquito is responsible for anywhere between one to two deaths every minute. The latest death toll of mosquitoes is in the neighborhood of 800,000 a year. To put it in perspective, that's essentially five or six, seven, forty-seven worth of people crashing every day. And nobody seems to pay attention. The world is not doing a whole lot for the reduction of sources of mosquitoes. And as long as we can kill all the adults, but if we don't do anything about the mosquito, the larvae, they'll come back. And as long as we have a population sick with Zika, the mosquitoes are going to continue transmitting. Bottom line. As long as there are mosquitoes, there will be Zika. It's one of more than 360 viruses transmitted by mosquitoes. And scientists are studying how climate change may make the problem worse by causing higher temperatures. Those higher temps mean mosquitoes are becoming adults faster and therefore able to infect humans over a longer period of time. When you have an increase in temperature that will accelerate the developmental cycle of that mosquito. Now, instead of having 30 days for the mosquito to transmit, now you may have 33 or 34 days because of that compressed time frame. The other issue is what happens after a big storm. We know that Hurricane Maria destroyed Puerto Rico's infrastructure. There's also evidence the storm created more pools of stagnant water where mosquitoes thrive. All mosquitoes have an aquatic stage. A massive hurricane like this one Everybody was collecting water. So you have these people, everybody, myself included, collecting water in cisterns and buckets and whatever. And if it is left unattended for more than five or six days, if the mosquitoes find it, it will be a source of mosquitoes. Scientists from a private research group placed mosquito traps around San Juan neighborhoods. If they catch more than three of the Zika-carrying species Aedes aegypti in each trap, the Zika risk is considered significant. These days, when the traps are opened in the lab, scientist Marianne Ortiz says the numbers are three times that. Something that we noticed during our visits was that there were more breeding sites because the, the debris from the hurricane have uh, larvae. And so we saw places where we never saw larvae before. We were finding larvae because of the rain. There were many more breeding sites. In Puerto Rico, mosquitoes aren't going anywhere. And the government is claiming no new Zika cases. Faced with these two realities, Dr. Carmen Zaria decided to take matters into her own hands she found a way to restart testing pregnant women for Zika. 
I feel this is so important to be able to identify because most of the patients who have Zika do not have any symptoms. And if they are pregnant and they have Zika, they might be at risk for birth defects. Carmen did an end run around Puerto Rico's health department. She teamed up with the CDC to provide free Zika testing for pregnant women. It's the only program like it on the island. So, Melissa, we're starting the Zika testing today, and you're pregnant. It's always been a concern because I've seen people sick with Zika, and it's been... On the first day back in the spring, eight women had their blood drawn, including Melissa. Did you know when the hurricane started that you were pregnant? I found out, like, a week later. I was struggling with the, why now? But... Don't call this baby Maria. No. Do not call it's this baby boy. Maria. <laughs> that, that, I think that name will be eliminated from the birth registries in a while here. <laughs> the new testing continued through the summer, and it's still going today. Doctors say the first results are in, and even though it's a small sample, they're alarming. 9% of women are testing positive. That's almost what the rate was at the height of the epidemic. I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher. I'm not running for any political position, therefore I can actually honestly say what the evidence tells me to say. And the evidence is telling Carmen Zika is a very real danger today for pregnant women and babies. In Puerto Rico, around 26,000 women will give birth this year. So far... Fewer than 300 have been tested for Zika. I've been an obstetrician for more than 36 years. I've been blessed of being present for the birth of so many babies. And I can tell you that the first thing a woman asks, how's my baby? It's ethical in the sense that we need to do the right thing. Beth Murphy is the director of Ground Truth Films. This piece was produced by Beth Murphy and Mitch Hanley, with assistance from Nathan Tisdale and Marissa Miley. Special thanks to Ed Kashi, Ben Pender-Cudlip, and Mildred Rivera. Another version of this story aired on the Center for Investigative Reporting's Reveal program. Thanks to Taki Telenidis and Kevin Sullivan. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know what you think and give us a rating. Tell your friends they can subscribe to the Ground Truth Podcast on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever they listen. If you miss an episode, you can find the entire archive at our website, thegroundtruthproject.org. Thanks to Nina Porzuki, Phil Rado, Bob Kempf, John Ryan, Travis Stewart, and Doug Sugertz at WGBH. Music used in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Funding for this episode comes from WGBH News, the MacArthur Foundation, and the David and Lucille Packard Foundation as part of our Living Proof series. I'm Charles Sennett, executive producer of the podcast and founder of The Ground Truth Project, which supports a new generation of journalists to do on-the-ground reporting. Next time on Ground Truth. The 11th Hour a Thanksgiving program commemorating 100 years after the armistice on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour that ended World War I.
it was all so much worse than the worst that people had been afraid of. In other words, it's a reminder, I suppose, just to, to fear war much more than we do. We don't fear war enough and we don't love peace enough. We, we so easily get bored with peace. Christopher Clark, author of The Sleepwalkers, tells us how the lessons learned and not learned from a century ago still haunt us today. Thanks for listening.